Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 209. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Apologies for being a day late. Yeah, some might know, some might not even know. Just get to grab it when it comes out. But if it comes out, normally comes out. I try and get it out on a Wednesday. Starships over. But we've been down to Liverpool. If anybody's been following my Twitter feed there, yeah, everyone will have seen that. Been posting pictures from everywhere. Done the, the whole Beatles tour. What? A, oh God, it sends shivers up your neck. Honestly, when you go around these places and. You know, you kind of see Strawberry Fields, the gates for Strawberry Fields, and then you see Penny Lane. It's just bizarre, you know what I mean? Just quite, quite moving, to be quite honest. But that's why we just came back last night, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll put it out, you know, on Thursday. I hope no one is too bothered about that. I'll tell you what's coming up in today's show, then. We have music by David Bradshaw. David, as you remember last year, did Tau City Radio, a little bit of a kind of, or a, a song dedicated to the volume two of Starship Sovas. Well, as you know, Tau City Radio is David's little segment on the show and he did that, but he's done a new one. He's done Magnetic Tape Blues and I'm just about to play that and then I'm going to follow straight in. David sent over like a little bit of a blurb to go with the song as well and the song's just fancy. David, go on you know, write an album, and we'll do an al- we'll do an album together, sir. That would be amazing. So have a listen to this. This is the company, the new volume, Starship Sofas Volume Three, and it's looking good. And it's something like three hundred and thirty pages. I'm sure three hundred and thirty odd it might even be a chunky mother of a book. So that's coming out on the eleventh, the eleventh, the eleventh. Have you noticed how I can just segue the little blurb in there as well? So we've got that. Then we've got Science News by J.J. Campanella. 
Moving on, we have the the fiction, which is kind of coming up to October, you know, Halloweeny kind of time. We've got her acres of pastoral playground by Mike Allen. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I had Mike on to give her like a kind of one hundred one and everything Cthulhu. This is Mike's story, which is amazing. And we've got a little interview as well at the end of the story. If you remember, I said I'd get Mike back on just to tell us about that story and have a little chat with Mike as well. So that is it. That is the show, which is coming up to Halloween. Don't forget as well, just while I remember, pop over to Amy H. Sturgis's blog site. Because Amy's doing every day, she's doing a little piece on the kind of on Halloween, you know what I mean? So all the kind of the build up to Halloween. So do pop over there and say hello to Ames. First up then, a little bit of music. Yeah. 
it real I got no 60 cycle Got no microphone squeal The hand is magnetized The real one grow oh, The ghost in the machine He ain't got no soul Be sure to leave him something They can use Got David, go on. I got David as well, just to give a little kind of blurb on this kind of magnetic blues. You know, this just the whole idea of recording on the tape as well. David. Audio recording technology, the ways we preserve or document or even communicate music, uh, have certainly come a long way in recent years. Uh, the sorts of recording and processing and editing uh, manipulation of sounds that we have at our disposal on our laptops and desktops and iPads and the like these days would not 15 years ago have seemed like utter science fiction. Assumptions about the way we record music have changed dramatically, certainly within my professional memory. We've gone from the use of magnetic tape, you know, literally magnetic tape being run over, mechanically slid over a recording head uh, as uh, the standard way of recording things, to the, the digital domain that we enjoy now. And the attitudes have changed with it as well. While we now see the computer technology as being the best, safest, truest, most reliable way of doing things, uh, you know, tape seems a little crude by current standards, to be sure. My, in, in my own experience, remember feeling exactly the opposite way. That is, uh, when computer and digital domain type recording technology first started to come about, it seemed sort of too uh, insubstantial and mysterious. You're thinking to yourself, I've worked very hard on recording this music. Why would I trust it to something as, as ambiguous as a computer? Isn't there a hard copy backup somewhere? Uh, this, this can't be a reliable way of doing things. Now we have quite the opposite attitude. That is, we would certainly at this point look at tape as being so crude and primitive that it isn't a reliable way of recording things, and you'd want a computer backup. Of course, as we uh, keep pressing the technology ahead, uh, we're in danger of losing sight of the past, I suppose. The more advanced our own technology gets and the more we abandon the older ways of doing things, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, I, I don't mean to be preservationist about this whole thing, but uh, uh, we simply forget. Uh, for instance, the audio tape that was used as an industry standard for so many years is now extremely difficult to get because manufacturers simply don't make it. There's no demand. It's expensive and difficult to make. Nobody wants it. Everybody's recording on computers these days. So if you've got a reel-to-reel -reel tape player, no matter how well it might work, you can't get the tape for it anymore. Alternately, you might have things documented on audio tape from a number of years ago, but if you don't have the machines to play them on anymore, what good is the document? It occurred to me that it uh, resembled in some way an archaeological dig. You know, imagine an archaeologist digging up audio tape, much in the same way that... Um, uh, our, our, our contemporary archaeologists pardon me, might uh, dig up a, a stone with mysterious hieroglyphics written on it. And here we have a message that has been uh, painstakingly carved by some mysterious person thousands of years ago, perhaps, with, with some intent. And in a sense, it's preserved. Here it is. It's on the stone. It hasn't, it hasn't moved. It hasn't changed possibly for thousands of years. And here we are holding it now, and we don't understand what it means. 
so the message is preserved in one sense but totally lost in another. It occurred to me that uh, a reel of audio tape might be treated the same way, that we've got this wonderful document painstakingly recorded on audio tape of music or words or whatever, and yet if we don't have the machine to play it on and don't understand the technology, even though it's crude technology, it's still locked away from us and mysterious. There you go. It it does end like that and just start like that. Dave just I think just snipped that way. He was going to do maybe a, a Tau City radio and just give us a little kind of blurb on magnetic take blues. Like I say, this is coming out for volume three as well. We've sent it over to D and D is going to mix and match it as well, hopefully. So, what, David? What can I say? Thank you so much. Next up is Mr. JJ Campanella with his October Science News. Jim Squire. Greetings, greetings, and further greetings, my fine listeners. Welcome to this October 2011 Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening of raw, explicit science, Jim Campanella. And let's get this puppy rolling. Okay, you may or may not remember from one of our broadcasts many months back, I told you guys about a web phishing scam that was designed specifically to lure scientists and academics into its less-than-subtle grasp. As I have said previously, I am fascinated by social engineering scams that are directed at scientists, since they seem the last people on the face of the earth who would fall for scams that are usually so transparent. Well, believe it or not, I've been challenged with another and much more sophisticated one of those scams. This one is entirely new and directed at scientists and MDs, and if I wasn't so mistrusting a guy, I may have actually fallen for it. So as usual, this scam came in the form of a very legitimate-looking email letter. Let me read you the short letter which was emailed to me. It starts off rather strangely with how they addressed themselves to me, which is probably what got my spidey sense tingling at first. Here it is. Oh, and I will use my right here to employ a silly accent because this has nothing to do with serious science. Dear Dr. Campanella J.J., it is with great pleasure we invite you to attend the first annual EPS Montreal International Gene Conference to be held November 3rd through 4th, 2011 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. The conference will provide a forum for researchers in genetics and genomics to present cutting-edge research and learn about the latest breakthroughs on technologies. We would like to welcome you to our conference as our valuable speaker and present your recent work and ideas of population structure of Zostera Marina on Western Atlantic coast is characterized by poor connectivity and inbreeding that were published in J. Hered. Please visit our website at www.epsglobal.ca to see program details. Montreal International Gene Conference is organized by EPS Global Medical Development, Inc. Professor Massaro, the editor-in-chief of the journal Cell Biochemistry and Biophysics, will be present at this event and call for submission of papers in this field. All papers presented at the conference may have a chance to be published in a special issue of Cell Biochemistry and Biophysics. You may be one of the lucky ones. 
APS Global Medical Development Inc. is a Canada-based biomedical consultancy agency that promotes continuing academic education, knowledge transfer, and scientific exchange through life sciences-oriented conferences. We are delighted to host the EPS Montreal International Gene Conference in Montreal in order to foster and promote excellence in genetics and genomics through education and research and to provide leadership in promoting development of evidence-based clinical genetics and genomics as well as the basic research that supports genetics and genomics and these clinical advances. We look forward to meeting you in Montreal and wish you all an enjoyable time. Warmest regards, Yao Lu, MD-PhD, Executive Chair of Montreal International Gene Conference 2011, President of EPS Global Medical Development, Inc. Well, I felt good about that invite for about a nanosecond and was thinking of Sally Fields and her famous Academy Award phrase, they like me, they really like me. Then practical reality hit. That missive has links to the EPS website, and it all looks pretty legit. Uh, they even have a serious-looking Facebook page. The only problem is that this is not, not ever how speakers are invited to conferences. First, they are usually invited to conferences by either a committee of scientists or part of a scientific organization, like, for example, the American Society of Plant Biologists, to which I'm a member, or the International Society of Microbiologists, etc. If you're not invited by the organizers, who you have actually heard of, you may be invited by a single scientist who is chairing a specialized session at a conference. For example, if your specialty is malarial transmission in scarlet capuchin monkeys of Ghana, and the conference session is on tropical diseases of Central African primates, you get the idea. And again, usually the person contacting you about the conference is well-known in your field. Otherwise, they themselves would not have been made an organizer. The second problem is that if you are a conference organizer and you are asking a scientist to speak, you offer them not only free access to the conference, all conferences must charge in order to get their venues paid for, but also paying for travel to the conference as well. And in addition, in some cases, Honoraria are offered to major hammers in the science fields. For example, if you're a Nobel laureate, you have the right to have your precious time paid for. It was immediately obvious that the EPS invitation was from no one I had ever heard of before, and they made no offers of remuneration of any kind. I immediately forwarded the invite to my wife and a couple of my colleagues who had the same response as me. In fact, one of them wrote back and said, quote, Jim, I'm not sure I would take that invitation. You will probably wake up the next morning in a bathtub of ice with no kidneys. Unquote. My lovely wife, ever the practical one, did me one better and did a quick internet search to find out more about EPS and its conferences. She found out that EPS hosts the same first annual conference in multiple fields. Neurosurgery, trauma surgery, genetics, community health care, epilepsy, infectious diseases, genomics, epigenomics. Okay, this was getting more suspicious at this point. I wrote them back, mostly out of curiosity, to see what their response would be. Dear Dr. Yao Lu, thank you for your invitation. I'm happy for the opportunity to participate in EPS Global First International Genetics Conference as a guest speaker. 
However, I would like to know if all my expenses, accession to the conference, round-trip airfare, and hotel, will be underwritten by the organizing committee of the conference. In addition, I would also like to know what the time of day and the duration of my presentation would be. Kind regards, Dr. James Joseph Campanella, Ph.D. The response was this. Dear Dr. James Joseph Campanella, Thank you very much for your interest in the EPS Montreal International Gene Conference to be held November 3rd through 4th, 2011 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. The presentation is in formal oral format in English or Chinese, and the duration should be around 10 to 15 minutes. If you confirm your participation, please let us know as soon as possible, and send us your CV with photo, presentation topic, and abstract before September 30th. The registration fee is now 800 US dollars, and the accommodation was originally not included. However, as a guest speaker, you only need to pay the registration fee. The hotel accommodations during the conference in Montreal would be free as a privilege, as well as local transportation and airport pickup. Meanwhile, if you present in the conference, we will provide you with further collaboration opportunities with international colleagues. Please find the detailed information in the attachment. We reserve the right for any change. We look forward to seeing you in Montreal, Canada. Warmest regards, Miracle Law, Assistant to Dr. Yao Lu, EPS Global Medical Development, Inc. Miracle Law? Is that Dr. Miracle Law? Is that actually supposed to be a name? Anyway, this little interchange screamed scam at me. After doing some more internet digging, it appears that hundreds of scientists have been offered a chance to speak at an EPS conference, and they all have pretty much the same experience as me. In fact, I just got another invite from EPS. This time, it's to the, quote, first annual EPS International Diabetes Conference in Montreal, Canada. And it was exactly the same invitation. Just another field of science. Same place, no credible details about the conference, no final detailed program or list of speakers, just one month prior to the conference, no committees, no details on the web. And I am a plant geneticist who does nothing remotely related to diabetes. This is a scam, a sting to get your $800 transferred directly to the bank account of some crooks. And apparently, there is no international authority to investigate the case and stop these liars. I am amazed and amused by the whole thing, but at least most scientists seem to be aware enough to mistrust the whole matter. Unfortunately, as I have said previously, scientists are just as prone as anybody else to be scammed if things look legitimate enough and they are complimented enough. Why don't we talk some real science? This nonsense is overstaying its welcome. There are several very cool real stories to tell you about tonight. The first actual story is about a strange type of molecule called microRNA. Now, I suspect most of you have never heard of microRNA. MicroRNA has been discovered and characterized in the last 15 years or so. If you remember your high school biology, you have messenger RNA, which carries messages from the DNA, transfer RNA, which carries amino acids to make proteins, and ribosomal RNA to make the ribosomes, which actually make proteins. Well, into this category comes the new microRNAs. These are short pieces of RNA, hence microRNA, of about 22 uh, nucleotides in length, 
which actually have the ability to regulate whether genes are allowed to express by targeting the messenger RNAs for degradation. What that means is, is that they can essentially turn off a gene function by killing the message before it gets to be made into a protein. This is a very cool thing because it's another level of gene regulation that we were completely ignorant of until well, relatively recently. But that is not the story. That is just the background. This is the story. Dr. Chen Yu Zhang, a molecular biologist at Nanjing University in China, has just published a study in the journal Cell Research. You have heard the old adage, you are what you eat. Well, this seems to be along the same lines. Zhang has found that microRNAs from common plant crops, such as rice and cabbage, can be found in the blood and tissues of humans and other plant-eating animals. One microRNA in particular, MIR168A, which is highly enriched in rice, was found to inhibit a protein that helps remove low-density lipoprotein, LDL, from the blood, suggesting that microRNAs can actually influence gene expression across kingdoms. That means, given the example, that it looks like that by eating certain foods, you may actually be up or down regulating your own gene function. That means turning your own genes on and off and affecting your health without even realizing it. And we're not talking the obvious things here, like simply eating a high-fat diet and increasing your cholesterol. We're talking about a whole very subtle world of control and regulation that we didn't even realize was out there until Zhang's paper suggested it. There was a recent discovery in the last year that microRNAs circulate in the blood by hitching a ride in small membrane-encased particles known as microvesicles. Because of this finding, there's been a surge of interest in microRNAs as a novel class of biomarkers for a whole bunch of diseases. Dr. Zhang was studying the role of these circulating microRNAs in health and disease when he discovered that microRNAs are present in other bodily fluids, such as milk. Quote, my discovery gave me the crazy idea that microRNAs from ingested foods like milk could also be found circulating in the serum of mammals, he says. To test his hypothesis, Zhang sequenced the blood microRNAs of 31 healthy Chinese subjects and searched for the presence of plant microRNAs. Plant microRNAs are structurally different from those of mammals, so they react differently to certain chemicals. Zhang and his team were able to differentiate the two by treating them with a chemical sodium periodate, which oxidizes mammal microRNAs, but not plant microRNAs. To their surprise, they found about 40 types of plant microRNAs in the test subject's blood. Even more amazing, some of those plant microRNAs were found in concentrations that were comparable to major human microRNAs expected in the blood. The plant microRNAs with the highest concentrations were recognized as ones called MIR156A and MIR168A. Both of those are known to be enriched in rice and cruciferous vegetables such as cauliflower, cabbage, and broccoli. Furthermore, the researchers detected those two microRNAs in the blood, lungs, small intestine, and livers of mice in variable concentrations that significantly increased after the mice were fed raw rice. Although cooked rice also was shown to contain that intact micro-168A molecule. 
These microRNAs were found to interact with the mRNA of the protein which produces the LDL receptor and targets it for destruction. What that does is reduce the ability of the animal to clear quote-unquote bad cholesterol from their blood. These protein levels decreased in the livers of live mice three to seven days after eating fresh rice or being injected with synthetic MIR-168A. This significantly increased LDL in the blood and also increased cholesterol. When the researchers injected the mice with an RNA sequence that bound to and neutralized MIR-168A, the protein and LDL levels returned to normal. This is absolutely incredible to me, and the health and treatment implications are astounding. Although Zhang has a long haul before he can elucidate the mechanisms by which plant microRNAs can regulate gene expression in humans, these astounding initial results promise to increase our understanding of how specific ingredients in food can mediate health and disease. Zhang says that he is certain that other researchers will find more microRNAs in food that have major effects on health, and I have absolutely no doubt that he is correct. Next story, still on the topic of food. Dr. Keiko Abe of the University of Tokyo reported a week ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on a topic of interest to those of us who find the taste of certain healthy vegetables repulsive. Abe has finally explained how a little red berry called the miracle fruit makes just about anything from the sourest lemon to the bitterest beer taste sweet as honey. It appears that a protein in the fruit tickles the tongue's sweet-sensing machinery and intensifies sweetness in the presence of acidic flavors like those found in citrus fruits as well as bitter flavors. So-called foodies have known the effects of the miracle fruit Ricadella dulcifica for a long time. I have read that these people have, quote, flavor tripping parties, which, by the way, sounds to me very reminsome of something from the 1960s where the guests are actually dropping acid or something to test its effects. These foodies will pop a berry and then chew for a while, coating their mouth and tongue with its fruitiness. Then the sampling begins. They report that Guinness Stout tastes like a chocolate shake. Tabasco hot sauce loses its spicy heat and instead tastes sour. They eat lemons and limes, which allegedly gush with sweetness. Hence, they call this a miracle fruit. And while the active ingredient in the miracle fruit, something called miraculin, has been known for decades, it hasn't been obvious how this protein confers sweetness. Now Dr. Abe has found Miraculin's interaction with the tongue's sweet sensors depends on the acidity of the local environment. At an acidic pH of 4.8, neutral water, remember, is a pH close to 7, the sweet-tasting cells respond twice as vigorously to Miraculin than they do at a less acidic pH of 5.7. At a closer-to-neutral pH of 6.7 and higher, the protein seems to shift slightly in shape, and block the sweet sensors, but not activate them. That explains why under certain conditions, sweet foods may taste less flavorful after eating the berry. Probably the strangest thing about this protein is its ability to interact with the sweet sensors of the tongue. You don't generally think of proteins as having this ability. Think of a nice juicy steak. They don't taste sweet, do they? Plants pack their fruits with sugars to entice animals to gobble them up and distribute the seeds inside. This is why fruit is sweet. 
But if a plant can't produce enough sugar because a berry is tiny, it uses a trick. And it uses protein instead of sugar to deliver the sweetness needed to be noticed by the animals. It's a way to trick the animals into thinking the berry is sweet when it is not sweet. Researchers are pushing the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to approve the protein's use in food. The FDA, however, is not exactly sanguine about how practical the use of this stuff is. I mean, basically, it's a protein. Proteins fall apart if heated. That sensitivity would make it a poor candidate for use in baked goods or just in general, most foods. So at least for the moment, miracle fruit is limited to use in fresh foods which makes its applications kind of restricted to weird tasting parties and avant-garde restaurants. Okay, here's a short but interesting story that not everything that biologists take for granted is always true. Dr. Nicholas Folks, a chronobiologist at Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany, just published a paper in PLOS Biology that demonstrates one of biology's basic ideas about life on Earth ain't necessarily so. For decades, it's been believed that every organism on the face of the earth has a circadian and turtle clock rhythm of 24 hours. All chemical and biological rhythms in plants and animals are based on that daylight clock that has been bred into our DNA for millions of unchanging years. Well, now folks has found an exception. Cave fish are ancient, scaleless, and live in total darkness and lack any pigment. Folks has discovered that these cave fish have another unusual feature, a circadian rhythm, body clock, of 47 hours. That is about twice the length of most animals, including humans. Normally, the most important factor that regulates circadian rhythm is sunlight, but Folks writes that the cavefish's clock is totally blind to light. He says, quote, they have lived for millions of years completely isolated from the day-night cycle of the earth. The researchers collected cavefish living beneath the Somali desert. They exposed the fish, along with zebrafish, to a day-night cycle. Only the zebrafish responded. The photoreceptor genes in the cavefish did not respond to light at all. In other words, says folk, their clocks are blind. But even though the clocks are blind, they are nonetheless functional. Folks found that he could regulate the cavefish circadian clocks by creating a regular feeding schedule, finding that their clocks are there, but just not light sensing. He said additionally that, quote, this research is providing new information about the evolution of circadian clocks and the effect of constant darkness. We are really looking at evolution of biological clocks at a gene level here, unquote. I will finish the night with an update on exoplanet research, which we have been following for the last couple of years, actually. Astronomer Dr. Francesco Pepe of the Geneva Observatory and his team are publishing a study this month in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics that presents his team's long-awaited characterization of the detected exoplanet population. These planet hunters have found more than 50 new planets, including at least 16 not much bigger than Earth, and one small gleaming chunk, a 3.6-fold Earth-mass planet parked just inside its star's life-friendly zone. Pepe says, quote, We can say that most of the stars have planets, and most of them have low-mass planets at this point. Pepe and his team used the HARP system to find distant worlds by 
focusing on wobbly stars that are being pulled in different directions by orbiting bodies. The update brings the team's eight-year discovery total to more than 150 planets. The findings report that more than 50% of stars like the Sun include planets orbiting around them. The smallest of these planets, with masses between Earth's and Neptune's, occur as part of entire planetary systems, and not usually by themselves. Pepe says, quote, The latest data suggests that roughly 7 to 80% of low-mass planets might live in multi-planet neighborhoods, unquote. One of the surprising findings of the new paper suggests that lighter planets are more common in extrasolar systems than heavy Jupiter-like ones. Because up until these findings, astronomers were detecting mostly the big planets. Remember the Drake equation that calculates the likelihood of extraterrestrial life? The results of these studies will be useful in changing the variables in that calculation to make it more accurate. Because the equation considers, among other factors, the fraction of sun-like stars in the galaxy that host planets and the fraction of those planets that are Earth-like. These new results will give us a better idea of how many Earth-like planets there actually may be. While surveys have not yet detected any actual Earth-mass planets yet, the HARPS Observatory previously detected a planet with only 1.8 Earth masses, which is pretty close, and the newly discovered planet HD 855-12b, which lives in the habitable zone around its star in the constellation Vela, is only 3.6 Earth masses. Within the next 10 years, astronomers hope to aim new extremely large telescopes at target exoplanets to detect the presence of oxygen and other biomarkers in their atmospheres from across intergalactic space. But at the moment, there are no instruments that can do that. We just have to be patient. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't turn down any invites to a miracle fruit-tasting party. And do not accept any invites from EPS if they email you. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go. James, thank you very much. Next up is Main Fiction, and it is by Mike Allen, her acres of Pastoral Playground. And what I'll do as soon as the story's finished, again, we'll just jump straight into the interview, because that's really talking about the story as well, and... Mike narrates the story, so, you know, we'll just jump straight into that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Her Acres of Pastoral Playground by Mike Allen Linda chews her peas. Her husband watches, his wary gaze fixed on the beauty mark beneath her left eye, no bigger than a felt-tip stipple, fetching accent to the delicate sweep of her cheekbone. When Delmar first placed her plate in front of her, that mark wasn't there. "'Your pork chop okay?' he asks. "'Not too dry?' She nods, mutters, "'It's fine,' through a mouthful. The muscles at her temples flex as she chews, drawing his attention to the lovely streaks of grey that flare above her ears, so exotic, so witchy. The angle of her projects in his mind just so, and a sleepy flutter of lust stirs deep within him, and a flutter of alarm, too, though why that is, he doesn't understand. Then the black spot on her face moves. It's larger now, no longer a beauty mark, 
a lumpy mole with a thick black hair sprouting from its center. The hair twitches again, like a bug's antenna. A whippoorwill starts its saw-motion song outside as a warm breeze stirs the kitchen curtains. Through the window, Delmar notes two of the Appaloosa grazing in the pasture closest to the barn. Despite the brooding overcast sky, sunlight washes the farm in soft watercolor hues. Linda picks up her ear of corn, peers out the window just as a faint spatter of rain belies the filtered sunlight. The devil's beating his wife, she says. Megan would love this. I hope she's better soon. She will be, Delmar replies. He says it automatic, like it's a programmed response, a catechism. The growth on the side of his wife's face thickens into an articulated tentacle, long as a tablespoon, and like one of those it flares and bulges at its end. The growth waves up and down as if it's sniffing the air. Linda brings the cob to her mouth, paying no attention to her new deformity. Delmar goes to the stove, where he has set a wooden-handled butcher-knife so that the top half of its blade rests on a red-hot coil. He picks up the knife. "'Honey, I'm sorry, but you need to hold still a second. What he does next, he does with the impassive face of the parent who must every day hold his daughter with cystic fibrosis upside down and beat her to make sure she can breathe another day. Linda holds still, closes her eyes, seems to shut down, almost. When he finishes, there's a raw circle on her cheek, like a cross-section of severed sausage, bloodless, and in seconds it's stretched over with new skin, pink and healthy. She starts again as if nothing has happened, picks up her ear of corn, and starts to gnaw. The black thing squirming in Delmar's hand screams when he drops it in the pot, but he clamps the lid over the boiling water before it can crawl out, before it can speak. He knows he can't let it speak. Why he knows this, he can't really say. It's as if someone is whispering in his ear, whispering frantically, Don't let it! Don't let it! Don't let it! But there's no one else in the room, just him and Linda. Outside, the rain sound stops, and the landscape brightens, though the clouds stay gray as ever. "'Sweetie,' calls Linda, "'could you bring me the butter?' "'You bet,' he says, keeping the pot lid pressed down hard. "'In a minute, just a minute,' he eyes her sidelong. "'Just don't forget who loves you.' She smiles wide over the decimated contents of her plate. "'I haven't, ever.' After lunch, he trudges out to the vegetable garden, not a trouble on his mind. Though there's no break in the clouds, the light that so kindly warms his land makes its gentle presence known on his face. Most of his farm is given over to pasture land. He likes to joke to Linda that he's renting from the horses, but he keeps a half-acre tilled, and the animals, with preternatural discretion, leave it alone. He's never even had to put a fence around it. He's imagining a sweaty but productive day spent plucking hungry bugs off the potato leaves, pulling weeds from between the beanstalks, harvesting the ripest ears of corn. How easy the work comes to him, a lifestyle he once knew only from the half-listened-to tales 
More like shaggy dog complaints, really. Long, growly rants with no real point from his grouchy father. God rest his soul. Delmar agrees now with his father that he really was born to this work. He can hardly remember his life before he brought Linda and Megan here. The corn rows tower at the edge of the tilled square furthest from the house. He gets to that task last of all, and once he's there something in him grows uneasy, and a sensation crawls through his shoulders like the prick, prick, prick when a wasp alights and starts to scurry across exposed flesh. But he feels this on the inside of his skin, not the outside. And at once his mind fills with the sight of the black limb twitching on his wife's face, the texture of her flesh when he cut into it, spongy and yielding not a speck of blood. He doubles over, his insides pricking, but that voice is back, soothing in his ear. Don't think about it. Just don't think about it. Don't let yourself think about it. And though his heart is racing, he can stand up straight. The pricking sensation is gone. He breathes deep. His eyes take in the beauty that surrounds him, the grass-green slopes, the fecund garden, thriving as a result of his proud handiwork. Yet he's still not at ease. Beyond the corn lounges a long stretch of pasture that the animals hardly ever visit. Beyond that rises a gray haze of fog. He thinks nothing of it. This wall of fog is always there, misting up in a thick curtain to join with the low-hanging clouds overhead. Instead, a spark of light in the pasture catches his eye, orange and pulsing, like fireplace embers. A brush fire? Couldn't be. Something pricks in his belly, once, sharp, and stops. His boots whisk softly through the grass. For as long as he can remember... There's been an oddity present in this particular pasture, a blackened spot, perfectly circular, about the size of a manhole, where nothing grows. It's a lightning strike, that internal voice always tells him whenever he gets close. Nothing special, not important. But now the burnt circle on the ground has rekindled. He comes upon it to find it alive with curling lines of pulsating orange and yellow light. Stranger still, the lines etched by the glow-form patterns, some of which he recognizes, though it's as if a brick barrier stands in his mind between recognition and understanding. The patterns throb. A sound from the fog bank. A sob. The pricking beneath his skin returns. Delmar takes a step toward the foggy veil, despite the voice whisper. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Stay away. Stay far away. Who's out there? He means to shout, but the sound barely leaves his throat. The sobbing within the fog continues. It's unquestionably the sound of a man weeping. Delmar goes pale. It's been months, at least, since he's ever heard another human voice out here. There's been no one, save him and his wife and daughter, safe from the rest of the world the way he's wanted it to be. Confusion and anger and that hideous pricking fear all slither inside him. Worse, he thinks he recognizes the voice, but he can't place it. The man's sobs grow louder, the sound of someone unhinged with grief, a father finding a child's murdered body in the trunk of a car. Delmar takes another step toward the gray wall. "'Get out of here!' he says, louder, but still not with the strength he'd like. "'You're trespassing! Go, go back where you came!' The man in the fog starts to scream. It's a sound ripped from the belly, and the screams keep coming, like the man is being shredded inside by something small and burrowing. And Delmar has heard this agony before, this man screaming in torture, and he covers his ears because he can almost make out words. He reels and steps back. No, 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 hisses the voice in his ear. He looks down. He nearly stepped into the black circle, which is no longer burning no longer glowing, and he shudders. He doesn't know why, but he knows he should never step in the circle, never cross its edge. The screams in the fog have gone silent. He feels no desire to know who it was whose voice shrieked from the fog, no more than he feels desire to know why that fog never moves, why the sky never clears. Go to your family. Love them. Let them love you. And he goes back to the garden, not a trouble on his mind. 
Before the light starts to fade, he's filled a big wooden basket full of fresh-picked ears of corn. He'll shuck them so Linda can slice off the kernels and can them. They like to do this together, let their smiles do all the speaking. They'll do it tomorrow. He so looks forward to it. But things in the house take a turn for the worse. His heart won't settle. His mind won't stay quiet. Dinner goes wonderfully enough. Built around two thick steaks, he set out to thaw early that morning. He even speaks to Megan for a little while, once the rich meal lulls her mom into an evening doze. While Linda slumps comatose at her end of the sofa, he settles comfortably at the other end and listens to his daughter's high, sweet voice sing the alphabet or mouth nonsense syllables to the same calliope tune, and he feels consciousness drifting off. An electric hum accompanies a constant, steady rattling. It takes him a moment to place what he's hearing. The rapid-fire click-click-click of a home movie projector. Delmar hasn't heard that noise since his twelfth birthday, when his father dug out that seemingly ancient machine to show the gathering of school chums embarrassing footage of the family dog wrapping her leash around a younger Delmar's stumpy legs. It's now Delmar's father who sits with him, hunched at the other end of the couch. His father's head turns on a neck mutated by swelling cancer lumps. You asked me to dig this one out, his father says, the sound coming through the surgery hole in his throat. Don't whine to me. This is all your cross to bear. The beam from the heard but not seen projector shines on a wall of fog that conceals the other side of the room. Distorted on the fog, Megan's face flickers in close-up, framed by straight dark hair just like her mother's. The footage is black and white, rendering her bright green eyes a moist gray. He recognizes her unicorn pajamas. A large, hairy arm, a man's arm, reaches into frame, takes her wrist. Her eyes bug, her face contorts. Delmar feels the pricking inside as the huge hand turns her wrist palm up as another hand, the right to match the left, stabs a butcher blade into her forearm, slices a long black line. All this is unfolded free of all sound save the rattling projector, but when Megan's mouth stretches open to scream, it's loud and piercing and absolutely real. Delmar starts awake. Linda is beside him on the couch, still comatose, Megan screams again, somewhere in the house. Linda doesn't stir. Delmar can't bring himself to move, paralyzed by a gut-dragging and twisting spin of disorientation. He can't remember a time when he's heard Megan's voice without Linda close by, and he knows something is wrong with that, really wrong, and the voice that protects him is saying that too, that something's wrong. He can't really be hearing that. Yet upstairs, she has to be upstairs. She cries again, Daddy! The noise as raw and loaded with pain as if she'd fallen on a bed of nails. He runs for the stairs pell-mell. His daughter screams again, the sound like pins stabbed into his eardrums. When he reaches her bedroom door, her shrieks hardly sound human. But he throws the door open, and she isn't there. There's nothing there. The room is empty, even of furniture. Megan shrieks again, 
Now the noise comes from downstairs. The voice in his ear is whispering, It's gotten out of control. You need the book. You need to get it now. Delmar doesn't understand what the voice wants, or something in him doesn't want to understand. At Megan's next howl, he plunges back down the stairs, but stops halfway. On the couch, in Linda's place, a monster writhes, a black sunburst of ropey worms. The shrieks he hears are coming from somewhere in its center. It lurches to the floor, dozens of snaky limbs flopping blind, turning over lamps and end tables, capsizing the TV. The book, hisses the voice in his ear. This time he understands and knows he has to obey. He dashes through the den, toward the hall and the utility room at its end, but one of the black ropes twines his ankles, and then the thing is pulling itself on top of him, wailing in Megan's voice, keening syllables that are almost words. His bare hands tear at the cables of black flesh sliding against his skin, but it's as if two tendrils replace each one he breaks, lashing around his forearms and thighs and belly, struggling to hold him still. The thing is still screaming, now with Linda's voice. A snake-smooth band of contracting muscle coils around his neck, starts to tighten. But he is stronger. He shoves to his knees, rips out the boneless limbs by their roots, hurls the thrashing tangle across the room. Linda screams, screams, screams. He returns from the utility room with a huge book, its leather binding on the verge of crumbling, its pages flopping as he holds it open. The symbols in dark brown ink mean nothing to him, though they radiate a head-spinning wrongness. If these scribblings form words, he doesn't know what they say, and yet he does. It's as if another person inside him uses his eyes to see, his mouth to speak, knows the precise rhythms and pauses. And as this happens, the squealing black thing in the den begins to foam, to buck, to lengthen and thicken and lighten in hue. Delmar's vision blurs with tears that he understands no more than he does the incantation. His voice rises in crescendo, and all the space around him seems to ripple in a way that can't be seen physically, yet his mind still senses it. The ripple starts where he's standing and spreads through the room, the house, even the land beyond, and he knows that the power in that subtle wave is setting things to right. The voice tells him so. The black thing is gone. There's only Linda, resting peaceful on the couch, her only motion, the soft rise and fall of her breath. There is no sign of Megan, but the voice is telling him not to worry about that. He might not see her, yet whenever he asks, she'll speak, and he'll know she still loves him. Linda's limp as a bag of straw, but he's strong enough to lift her. He carries her to bed. Using the book always makes him uneasy. Vaguely, he recalls he's had to before, but now all is restored. Outside, there are no stars, but neither is there darkness. Just as with the sunlight, an unseen moon bathes his farmland in its shine. He can make out the shapes of the horses— straight-legged and still, possibly sleeping. He snuggles in beside his lovely, witchy wife, no troubles on his mind, 
and settles his head in the pillows. He's back on the sofa, and behind him the projector rattles. Megan sits next to him, kicking her legs, which don't quite touch the hardwood floor. I asked Grandpa to get this out again, she says. We haven't watched it since forever. The film unspools in grainy black and white, just like before, but now it resembles hidden camera footage, the view angled down from a corner of the ceiling. From this vantage, the disembodied observer peers into a large room with cinder-block walls, its carpet and other objects, mostly large plastic toys, a playhouse, a hobby horse, a sit-and-spin, shoved hastily against the far wall to bare the cement floor. Three figures huddle at the center of the bare floor, a man, a woman, a girl maybe seven years old, and the man has a book, a huge, ominous tome. There is a small window in the far wall, placed high, indicating a basement room. The window is just out of the camera's range of clear focus. Beyond it, through dingy glass, shadows move with chaotic fury. Sometimes blinding light flares there. Sometimes the window goes completely dark. The man is drawing frantically on the ground. The film speeds, somehow recorded in time-lapse, an effect that drastically accelerates the chaos seen in silhouette through the high window. The man completes a huge circle, inscribed along its entire circumference with headache-inducing sigils. The circle encloses him and the woman and child. "'You were always so good at drawing when you worked at that school,' Megan says beside him. "'University,' he corrects out of reflex. She giggles. "'I remember how you came home all the time with those weird drawings in your coloring book.' "'Sketchpad, darling. It was a sketchpad.' "'How you said you got them from some book you were studying, and you never let me look at them. Never!' He turns to tell her to stop sounding mad. It was all for her own good, but she's gone. Yet he's not alone. He's looking at a copy of himself, but with bruises on his face, a cut down one cheek, dressed in an Oxford shirt with a deeply stained collar, a torn sweater vest, fancy slacks ruined by more flowing stains. He looks like an academic who just escaped from the mouth of hell. He's dressed just like the man in the movie. He is the man in the movie. I try to stop you from remembering, this new self says, but you fight me. Some part of you is always warring with me, trying to remember everything, and when you do, you'll understand why you have to forget again. Understanding means madness. The man's voice, the voice of this other self, is the voice he always hears whispering in times of terrible stress. His guardian self keeps talking, but Delmar stops listening, because a new voice distracts him, murmuring right in his ear. It's Megan again. He can practically feel her lips against his skin. Don't listen, Daddy. He can't stop you from knowing. Delmar watches himself in the film, scrambling to draw a second, smaller circle about the size of a manhole at the center of the larger one. It's an agonizing, slow process, taking time even in time-lapse, with the activity seen in shadow at the far window getting more and more frenzied, impossible to comprehend. Oftentimes the mother, who his mind admits is Linda, must be Linda, seems like she's having an exasperating time keeping the little girl inside the circle. As Delmar watches, his immediate surroundings fade. 
Soon there's nothing left but the picture show flickering on the fog and Megan's voice in his ear. Sweet daddy, don't you worry, because I still love you. I understand it all. You tried to use evil to do a good, good thing, but you had to be evil to use evil. But you did it because you love us, and love can be evil and good together. The time lapse reverts to normal speed. In black and white, Delmar and Linda are arguing. She turns hysterical, terrified as his gestures grow more frantic. In the background, unnoticed by either of them, the little window rattles, darkens. Bizarrely, it looks like hair is growing around the frame. The voice changes, oh so subtly, still with the timber of a child, but more adult, more knowing. What you did was so powerful, it could never work, never, without the blood of an innocent. I know, Daddy, I know. In the film, he screams, the contortion of his face grotesque in total silence, and his wife pushes his daughter toward him. He takes her wrist, produces the knife. Still unnoticed, the window pushes open, just a crack, and the hair tendrils that have worked their way into the room begin to thicken and lengthen into streams, into ropes. Something huge is oozing through the gap around the glass, pouring down the wall as if made from soft clay. I should have been smarter, Daddy. I shouldn't have been so scared. The image goes out of focus, becomes a crazy split-screen, left and right visions going out of sync. In one lobe, Delmar, weeping as he chants, holds his daughter's bleeding arm over the inner circle, its black designs coming to life, shining, burning as the blood strikes it. In the other lobe, the window-pane bows and shatters as a slimy mass of dense hairy jelly shoves its way through, unfurls in an explosion of sucking lamprey mouths and clusters of lidless human eyes. Staring down from the corner again as this insanely hideous thing lands on the debris and springs, and it is as if the creature strikes a wall where the outer circle is drawn as if it crashes straight into curved aquarium glass. The creature is not repelled by the barrier, but hangs there in the air, sticking to the invisible wall like a tarantula hugged against a fishbowl, its dozens of limbs splayed out radically from its squirming core like a spider escaped from a schizophrenic's most deranged hallucination. Delmar has released his daughter's arm. He's kneeling by the circle, the book beside him, cords standing out against his neck as he chants. And the little girl sees the horrid thing hanging in the air, and she screams, and she runs away from the center of the circle. She runs out of view of the disembodied ceiling observer, and the thing crawls so fast around and across the surface of the invisible barrier, scuttling spider-fast, as Linda lurches too late to catch her daughter. All through this, Megan's whisper has never stopped. Don't you want to know really why we love you so? Because you're just like us, just one of us, all part of us and us part of you. We ate you all up. We did. You made the spell work. You made the monster back into Mommy and me with that magic from my blood. But we're still it, and it's still you. It's always been in you, changing you inside, one slow cell at a time. Because, because your, your spell, spell can't protect, protect you that small. 
The dream camera coldly documents what follows. The burst of dark fluid that sprays into the circle. A woman's severed arm lands on the floor. A foot lands another place. Snake-like black limbs greedily snatch them up, gulp them down. The man's face a mask of horror, but he doesn't stop his chant. Even as the multi-limbed thing joins him within the invisible aquarium, squeezing in through the opening made when the outer circle was fatally crossed. The dream Delmar doesn't stop his chant, even when the creature sends long, spiny limbs around the burning inner circle to hook into his vulnerable belly, punch in, and drag out the gray ropes coiled inside. The man's face contorts in unspeakable agony and mystic ecstasy as he howls his final syllables, and it's at that moment that the inner circle surges in a pillar of blinding fire, and the film changes to color. Wizard of Oz, Technicolor. But, Daddy, the part of us inside you is going to wake up, and then we'll be together like we should be, and you'll never be alone again. You'll never, ever, ever be left alone. When you hear my voice, I'm saying other words, too. Words that you can't hear, but the sleeping part of me that's inside you can. It hears me, and it wants to wake up. And when it does, that voice you always hear won't really be yours. It'll be ours. And we'll trick you, and you'll ruin the spell. We'll trick you, Daddy, when we wake up. The burning circle, now a blackened spot in a beautiful pasture, and the man, his body whole, his clothes changed to suit his surroundings, picks himself up as he watches a black mass shrink and thicken and transform into a new, familiar shape, but only one shape, never two. And behind them, at the edge of the pasture, the fog, and above them, the gray clouds that will never, ever lift. A tickling at his ear, a whisper. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! He springs awake and gropes for the lamp. The bulb casts its light across the comfortable contours of his bedroom. His wife lies on her side, sleeping peacefully, her back to him, the cartoon cat on her favorite nightshirt flashing its inane grin. From under her collar a dark tendril stretches, no thicker than a strand of yarn. Its end rests on his pillow, bulging out into a plush-lipped mouth that nestles beside the indentation where his head had rested. It continues to mouth words, as if it doesn't know he's not there any more. Delmar trembles, staring at the tiny mutant mouth that mutters in his daughter's voice. His eyes bulge. Tears smear his cheeks. All the barriers he'd built inside his own mind to survive day to day in this world he created for his family, for what remains of them, have crumbled. He comprehends everything. He only ever hears Megan's voice when it speaks from Linda's body. Confronting this truth isn't what causes him such disgust and dismay. What rips deep inside him, aggravating once again that pricking beneath his skin... Never before has that voice turned against him, said things that Megan herself would never have said. He leaves the bedroom, comes back with the book, sets it down, sits on the edge of the bed beside Linda, sets to work with a blowtorch and knife. His tears never stop. He returns to the book, 
starts to read aloud. It's dark beneath the ever-present clouds, but he knows the way. He walks across the verdant pastures that always stay green and thick with grass, no matter how long the animals graze. He walks past the burnt circle, its ember glow patterns pulsating brighter than he's ever seen, a silent blare of strident warning. He leaves the circle behind, strides into the fog, consumed by the message he needs to deliver. The rustling of his feet through the damp grass grows muffled in the dense mist, then fades altogether. It's as if his steps alight on the fog itself. He takes ten strides, twenty, thirty, and then, abrupt as a bird striking glass, the fog ends. His land ends. The entire world ends. Beyond the edge, an ocean of inhuman flesh seen from undersea. Just as the protective circle he drew in his horribly failed attempt to save his wife and daughter gave rise to a clear fishbowl barrier against the things it was intended to keep out, so does this island of sanity, built from his daughter's blood and his father's rambling stories, terminate at a barrier, one that shuts out the madness that swallowed the earth whole, he and what's left of his family. That disgusting black thing, forced to take the form of his wife, when the spell touched her piecemeal remains. But not enough of his daughter left to take form, too, only a voice. He and his family dwell now in this single pocket of peace, a bubble in the belly of the all-consuming beast. On the other side of that barrier, pressed hard against it, Pink translucent ropes thick as tanker trucks pulse and swell as rivers of ichor flow through their veiny channels. These titanic kraken tentacles move slowly like slugs on glass, and plasma churns and boils in the spaces between them. Sometimes the bubbles look like faces. Sometimes smaller things squeeze in between the vast squirming limbs, enormous urchins with eyes lining and crowning the spines, or amoebic creatures that spontaneously form mouths or multi-jointed arms as they flow bonelessly through the cramped liquid spaces. Sometimes gray skinless beings, sculpted crudely humanoid, emerge and scrabble desperately against the invisible barricade before the currents sweep them back into the sickening organic soup. Delmar understands all now. If the clouds ever parted above and around his farm, these sights would form his heaven and his horizon. He stares into the nausea-inducing chaos, unblinking, and speaks. I'll keep them alive, as long as I can. He spreads his arms. I'll keep this alive as long as I can. I'll never, ever give you what you want. Behind the sliding pink tentacles, a vast eye peels open. Even through the layers of wormy flesh he can see it. And when it opens, pores gape all along the massed coils of pink, translucent flesh. They gape and flex like octopus siphons sucking water. Perhaps it's these that make the noise Delmar hears as countless whispers speaking in one voice. Inside, Inside your shell, time still flows forward, but that time will end. Outside, time is still. 
Outside, your future is now. Outside, you are with us and have been forever and will be forever. Your future is our now. While the orifices whisper, an immense mouth yaws apart above the eye. Things crawl inside its lips, and somewhere inside the crawling darkness a man screams. He howls in such a magnitude of pain that Delmar can't begin to imagine what's being done to him. The man screams and screams over and over. Then perhaps there comes a fraction of respite, for the howls crumble into high-pitched and pathetic sobs. Maybe there are words, repeated pleas, but Delmar can't make them out before the screams start again and the mouth closes, sealing them away. The voice of the screaming, sobbing man, it is his own voice. The voice of his future self, once his safe haven has perished. Delmar's eyes are wet and bright and knowing, but his voice doesn't waver. I'll keep them alive. As long as I can. As he retreats into the fog, the million-strong voice whispers back, We wait. Light streams through the opened kitchen window as Delmar slices onions for the omelets. The soothing breeze accepts his invitation to drift inside. Delmar has the vaguest memory of an upsetting night, but a voice whispers in his ear, his own voice, telling him he has to forget for now, compartmentalize, or the weight of knowledge will keep him from what happiness he has left, with what's left of his family, and the time he has left. Whatever it was, it hardly seems to matter now. He breathes in the warm, sweet air that mingles with the smell of his own cooking, and knows he can handle whatever life has to throw at him. The sizzle of the bacon in the skillet doesn't completely drown out water rushing onto tile as Linda showers. He can do this almost without thinking. The bacon first, then eggs, to soak up the flavor. Linda always tisked him for that vice, frying eggs in bacon grease, but she can't stop herself from wolfing down the results. Just an evil way to show my love, he likes to tell her. He raises the knife above a helpless onion then stops short. There's singing coming from the shower. He freezes, listening, because it's Megan's voice that sings, and that doesn't seem right, and part of him knows the many, many reasons it's not right, but that part of him refuses to share its concerns aloud, and so he shrugs it off. It's not important. Back to his task. He realigns the onion and steadies it for the killing stroke. Then something catches his eye. He lifts his hand to his face. His heart starts to pound. A black growth shivers on the back of his ring finger, just below his wedding band. It extends as he watches, reaches out with twin protrusions akin to a snail's eyes. They twitch toward him. He feels a painful, pricking sensation, but under his skin, and for a brief flicker another vision imposes over his own, a vision of his own face, monumental in size and monstrous. The inner voice he always hears, the one that comforts and warns him, speaks again, but only says, We wait. His wife singing has stopped. The bathroom door opens. Sweetie? 
Linda calls from the shower. Can you bring me a towel? Sure, he answers as he positions his hand on the cutting board. In a minute. Mike, what a story. What a story. Thank you so much for letting Starship Silver play that. Well, thank you, Tony. I'm glad you liked it. You know, as I mentioned when we were kind of chatting before as well, um, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of having like sound effects and everything mixed in like that. Because sometimes, you know, it's a bit like a recipe. It's just overkill and you kind of, you kind of taste what you're trying to eat or, you know, that kind of silly metaphor but do you know what I mean but with yours it was just subtle enough there you know just to kind of give it a little bit of a like little kind of push and I thought that was brilliant so well done on that format as well well well, thank you Uh, as I was recording this I noticed that because I have sort of layers of flashback and multiple realities sort of playing at once I, I thought it might be helpful to have some audio cues of of some kind and to for for the sake of the reader and so that's why I chose to do that but I wanted to do it sparingly because I know it's a practice that's not really uh all that acceptable and all that acceptable in podcast circles like uh uh and I'm glad that it worked uh now the uh, the chopped onions at the end, you know, that's just sort of me being a, a wicked little twelve-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 uh, but uh, I'm 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 glad you liked it. No, it was it was it was really well done. Like I say, sometimes you know I, I get lots of kind of little bits of sounds clips coming over to us, you know, and sometimes it's just lace thick, and it just doesn't do me any good. You know what I mean? It's just like it's not what kind of ticks my boxes really. But that. That one did so well done, sir. On you know, it's lovely to get something that comes back crystal clear, audio perfect. Do you know what I mean? Because it it just saves me having to kind of mess on with it. Well, I, I've uh, since it became clear to me that podcasts were just going to be part of what I do as my weird little publishing career continues to roll forward. I've I've made it a point to upgrade my equipment a little bit, and I'm I'm glad it's paying off. Oh well, it certainly is. Tell us about then this story, and first of all, tell us because tell us the name of it again because I've wrote it down and I can't even read my own writing. So where was the where's the name well, come from? It's called Her Acres of Pastoral Playground, and uh, I actually plucked this from a relatively obscure, at least obscure to me, poem called On the Mantelpiece by James Lane Allen, uh, no relation. Uh, 
And I chose that for, I guess it's irony, because because the story is about this sort of playground that this man has created for his wife and child to, to escape the Cthulhu apocalypse. And of course, there's all kinds of things wrong with it, as you find out as you go through the story. No, honestly, well, like I say, and what was funny as well, because I asked Mike as well, I asked, you know, before we kind of got in, I said, where'd you get this from, Mike? And it took, Mike, actually, you forgot as well, and it took it, because I was recording, doing like a little test on this interview for like sound qualities and stuff like that. It took you, you know, because it is obviously, that's what I can say, it is a bit of an obscure poem, and it took you a while to find it. How do you come across just oh, sure. poems like that? You know, did, where do you pluck these ones from? Well, this, uh, uh, I, I have to tell you, Tony, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who is a published poet <laughs> and who has a reputation for, has, has a reputation for being some sort of speculative poetry expert. And, uh, you know, I've taught, I've lectured to college classes about poetry and I've spoken to, uh, uh, I've spoken at the Library of Congress about science fiction poetry. But in fact, the way that I found this poem was basically just sort of browsing through Bartlett's quotations online, <laughs> you know, in, until until I found a phrase that I thought kind of fit. And I, I do this a lot. It's it's I do I do this a lot. So you know, so mate to was, someone to, to no. What I was gonna I was gonna just I, say that then was was the story wrote and then then you found a title for it. That, that's correct. Well, Excellent. Here, oh, here's, wow. Here's the here's the story behind this story. If you want that, uh, it was originally uh, meant to be more of a riff off of the thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, than than off of uh, anything to do with H.P. Lovecraft. And it it began with a dream I had that imagined a man whose loved one was was an alien creature, a shape-shifting creature like what you see in, in those movies. And he was somehow forcing it to stay in one shape. And my, so my original story was based off of that idea. And, and uh, a lot of the same elements were in that version that are in the published version. But there were things about it that didn't, quite work because because I had no real logical way to explain how he could force the creature to stay in the shape when you know he wasn't doing something to act actively uh, punish it and about probably a year later uh, Daryl Schweitzer uh contacted me out of the blue with the concept for this anthology, which is Cthulhu's Reign. Um, the concept is that these are all stories that take place after the great evil god Cthulhu, the creation by H.P. Lovecraft, has taken over the world and destroyed humanity or is working actively to destroy humanity. And he asked me to contribute a poem. Uh, at that time, uh, my horror story, The Button Bin, was a finalist for the Nebula Award for Best Short Story. So I countered back with, hey, Daryl, how about a short story instead of a poem in this instance? And he agreed to it. 
And then I thought, okay, now I've talked him into that. What do I do? <laughs> and then, then, then I looked back at the story that I hadn't been able to sell yet in the form that it was in. And I thought, you know, add a little Lovecraftian magic to this and it fills all the plot holes. And, the, you know, there you have it. That's what the story you just heard is what became of that. Well, it's just, it's an amazing story. And again, again you know what I mean? Thanks for sharing, you know, sharing it there. Was it, like, cause I love asking this question because, like, you know what I mean? I tried writing, you know, many, many years ago and it just didn't, like, it didn't, couldn't even grasp the idea of it. Was it for you? Is, is writing easy for you? Or because you are, you know, in your kind of day job, you are a journalist, so this is what you're doing night and day writing but fiction wise what what right. what do you like to write fiction is it cutting your veins to get stories out you know it can go either way um, it, it it can go either way you know, i mentioned the button bin which you've had on this that, show yes before. that was brilliant um, that 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 was a story uh that sort of came to me all in a lump. It just sort of exploded into my head. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is great. I know that this is a great idea. But there was a piece missing in that initial burst of inspiration. So it ended up actually taking me something like four years <laughs> to come up with a version of the story that, that worked. Uh, you know, this story, Her Acres, uh, you know, uh, sounds like some sort of Andy Griffith type show, uh, did not take that long, but obviously, obviously, uh, it also needed some, it also needed some fine tuning after I got, you know, the initial inspiration. Um, and I enjoy writing, writing it's, writing itself is not a, a painful process me. Uh, I'm I'm learning more and more as I go. I'm always learning more. I, I never consider myself to be uh the teacher instead of the student really in 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 this uh craft. Um and uh some I'm I'm getting better about recognizing maybe when something that I've come up with needs more work. Uh you know <laughs> that that's something that comes with time too, you know, that's that's why you hear all the stories about that's that's why you hear all the stories about people, you know, s selling early work and and going back and managing to get it published and then going back and look at it ten years later and saying, oh my god, this is awful! <laughs> I can't believe I even <laughs> sent this out. You know, but you know what? I tell you what, with your day job, do you sometimes kind of say write a, a, a short story and think that sounds too much like me day job writing? You know the style of it. Does that ever creep into it? I no, I, I haven't had that. I haven't had that problem so much because uh, newspaper writing is is so much different. At least to me, it's so much different from from fiction writing or or poetry. Although they do share some common elements. Um, what does happen is that sometimes, some some sometimes, things that I have written about or that have happened to me in my day job will get transformed through whatever filter that is in my head that comes up with more creative stuff, and and uh, it will and some sort of some changed, altered, mutant version of it will then appear in something I've written that's fictional. Uh, 
but I've I've never had any I've never had in any any sort of a one is too close to the other panic. <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. That's Mike. Honestly, thanks for for sharing that story. Thanks for you know doing a fantastic narration and coming on sure. after the story as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Can I mention one thing? You certainly can. Uh, which is that you know, of course, as you know, I'm an editor too, and. Uh, I am right now assembling the 25th issue of Mythic Delirium, my little poetry journal, uh, and that's about to come out. It contains some new work by New York Times bestseller Catherine Valenti. I, I love being able to say things like that, um, and and uh, a number of other excellent works. And you know, I I hope people will be. Interested in checking out this other sideline that I do? Oh, definitely. dot com. Yes. Is it how how can someone get it? Is it just online, or is it is it in the kind of hard format as well? Well, it's it's a uh, it's a print zine, but you have to order it online. It's really it's really only available through uh, the mythicdelirium.com dot com website, uh, which has crazily enough been working just fine for me. <laughs> That's the, well, honestly, Mike on there as well. So please, you know, if anyone is Mike does, you know what I mean, just pop over there and say say hello to Mike if, as well. If, <laughs> thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. Oh, you're more than welcome. Listen, Mike, you look after yourself, sir. I'll do my best. It's not easy. <laughs> and that is Starships over two hundred nine. Put to bed. I hope you have a fantastic Halloween and scare it out of each other because I hate ghouls and ghosts and zombies. Can't stand them, as you know. So there you go. That is the show. If you're interested, this week's... Um, if you're interested, this week's Sofa Notes is someone you might have known, might know of, Mr. Larry Santuro. Do pop over there. It's just an amazing experience talking to Larry. Do you know what I mean? He's just like the, the big brother. I, you know, well, I've got a big brother. I was going to say big brother. I never had. I have got a big brother. But he's like the cool big brother. So, Larry, thank you so much. Honestly, I, I just love talking with Larry. Do pop over there and have a listen to Larry Santuro. So that is Starship Sofa 209. Put to bed. Keep marching on there. Next one, 210. Ho, ho. Even that was even... 210. There's even like another 100 and odd shows before all that as well. <laughs> so that is it. I hope you enjoy it. Do stick around and I will see you next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 